Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Just like people, bread comes in many shapes, sizes, and tastes. Whether you're hungry for a slice of pizza or jonesing for some sourdough, your preference says a lot about you. It's been said that bread is the great uniter. I would have to agree. Every culture may have its own version, but like art, bread is born from our creative spirit, and that's what connects us across the globe. It's diverse, unique, and quite often memorable. Join me on this journey as we discuss not only bread, but also life with a wide array of characters. My name's Jim Serpico, and this is Bread for the People. Today, we hear from Peter Reinhardt, one of the most respected bakers and baking educators in America. Three of his books have won James Beard Awards, including the book of the year for The Bread Baker's Apprentice. Peter has a new book out called Pizza Quest, My Never-Ending Search for the Perfect Pizza. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Peter. I really appreciate you taking the time. I feel like there's so many different things I would love to talk to you about. Maybe we would talk another time. Because I know you're yeah, also very much into pizza. So uh, another topic of interest of mine is... Does wood really make a difference in these pizza ovens? Because it's such a big thing now, these home pizza ovens. I have one. I have the uh, Gosney Rock Box. And at 950 degrees, does it really matter? That's a big question. And it's, uh, it's kind of like one of those eternal debates. It depends on who you ask. A lot of times, on who you ask. One guy, I'll tell you one guy in, uh, in uh, Portland, Oregon, whose who's, uh, pizzeria, uh, uh, a pizza shoals gets constantly rated in the top 10, you know, uh, it's phenomenal pizza. And he uses like a classic uh, Baker's pride, you know, pizza oven, the old style pizza ovens. And when I asked him about it years ago, when he first opened, I said, uh, you know, how come everyone's going to wood and wood fire and all that? How come he said, well, there's a lot of practical reasons. One is, you know, the consistency of getting people who know how to run one of these. He says, but in the end, he says, my, my philosophy is it's not about the source of the heat. It's about the quality of the BTUs, and that's become my sort of go-to phrase now. So he's really convinced that it's more about the you know intensity and the consistency of the heat. That's what I think. And I think, like like a lot of people say, if a pizza's in an oven, like a Neapolitan pizza for 60 to 90 seconds, how much benefit is it getting from the smoke and everything else? It's really not even getting any smoke. Uh, is it just the fact that you can get it hotter and, you know, we, there's a lot of there's a lot of opinions about it. Um, my experience with those brick ovens has been that if you're going to bake something for a long time, like bread, uh, which can take 25, 30 minutes, so then sometimes you can taste sort of a, a distinctive brick oven flavor. But 
pizzas. I mean, I think, you know, if you were to do a blind tasting and have two quality pizzas made from an electric oven versus a wood-fired brick oven uh, and, and not let the person know which one was which, it's a good chance that they probably wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Yeah, and all these new pizza ovens from the Uni to the Rock Box, and there's some others now, I mean, they get to 950 pretty quickly and pretty consistently, and they've got the stone on the bottom. It's unbelievable. I have to say that I'm really impressed with the unis and the, and the rock boxes because they've been they're like game changing uh, inventions. I have in my backyard a um, a, a Forno Bravo small the smallest uh, brick oven that they have. It's even like it comes already prefabbed and ready to be just lifted and put in a in a in a big cast iron holder and everything else. And it's wonderful to have. And at the same time it's a pain in the butt and uh, you know, having a little uni or a rock box, you could just set it up whenever you want to use it. It's light as a feather and everybody who I know who's using them is in love with them. As a novice pizza maker, what is the difference between a Neapolitan pizza and what I'm used to as a New York pizza? Yeah, that's I mean, again, the terminology itself has become, almost you could almost say a barrier to understanding although you know I think what's, what's happening is, is in the last few years i think the pizza community has redefined those terms uh what used to always be called neapolitan pizza was basically meant pizza that that can trace its origins to naples that are the round pizzas that like like uh, lombardi's in new york and you know everything from from uh, the gas fire to the wood fire to any to a, a gas uh, electric fired oven, any kind of pizza that was round with sauce and cheese was called Neapolitan. And then because it was kind of, uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, evoked that, that connection, that lineage. On the other hand, um, uh, over the years, as more of these different categories have emerged, we've started to kind of fine tune those terminologies. So now what's, when, when people say Neapolitan pizza, they're really referring to wood-fired brick-style ovens that are done in the style of Naples, the wood-fired uh, uh, style. And, and New York style, what we used to call New you know, it's now its own category, New York style, which is another broad category that can mean a lot of things. And um, and essentially it's it's this, the kind of pizzas made in New York and New Jersey and Philadelphia. And it's like, it's it's what we grew up with. It's the pizza we grew up with. And then, then there's like pizza that's made all across the, the country that is essentially, New York style with, with regional twists and turns. So very often the regional twist will give it its own designation, like pizza made in Ohio, or, or sometimes we'll just call that general category pizza Americano, but it's really basically New York style slash, or, or sometimes also called Neo-Neapolitan, meaning New World Neapolitan, but basically with regional twists. So Ohio pizza, which is, uh, does, does very well in competitions, because it's very focused on toppings. It's very good. It's very, it's one of the pizza styles in the last 20 years that really put the focus on creative toppings uh, is really just a, a play off of New York pizza, usually with a, maybe a softer, thicker crust. Uh, it's not, you know, it's a different crust than New York pizza, but it's in that style. So each region got its own little, little, you know, shout out of a style. Detroit style then became, you know, what's really different about Detroit style from Sicilian style that's, as it's done in Brooklyn. Not much, you know, and, and the grandma pizza, which is done in like Queens, they're all variations of a quote focaccia style pizza, 
but everybody wants to give it its uh, more specific derivation. So the Detroit style pizza is essentially kind of like a Sicilian, but baked in a particular steel pan with a thick crust with cheese floating over the side, you know, and whereas a Sicilian is more baked in a lower one inch thick pan that, but still a very thick pizza uh, that can be made in a couple of different ways, uh, a, a twice baked, pre-baked style uh, or a single bake style. So you had Spumoni Gardens in Brooklyn, which kind of gets a lot of credit for having a following but really not everybody believes that that's the best Sicilian pizza, but it is, but it's got a following. And then there's a couple other places that go, no, no, we're the real Sicilian style. And, and I've had some of those, uh, you know, in Brooklyn that are better. And now everywhere, everywhere across the country, people are making their own Sicilian variation. So it's, it's, it's a wide open field. That's the, and, and so I think we, the pizza community continues to kind of respond by refining the, the language to articulate, uh, you know, distinctions. So grandma pizza, does it use the same dough base as other pizzas? Yeah. Could you, yeah. you say it's a spin on focaccia because I make focaccia and I make pizza dough different the way I do each one of them. What's the difference? The amount of water? And sugar. All right. I put sugar in my pizza dough. I don't put sugar in my focaccia dough. Yeah. That, that is a, an option, but not necessarily a sort of requirement. The other difference for me is uh, I let the focaccia rise. There's an initial proof for 90 minutes, then a shape, and then a 90-minute proof. Right in the pizza, I'm doing a half-hour rise, refrigerating and using it, you know, after 24 hours. There's so many variations on a theme that it's almost impossible to say that there's there are these rules that govern it. There's more like general rules that with variations, you know, within a theme. But yeah, focaccia has definitely risen. Um, before it's baked, and whereas a pizza dough usually isn't, but a Detroit-style pizza is risen before it's baked. So, you know, it's you could almost say that all of them are pizzas. Every All of them are, are pizzas, and then within those, within the realm of pizza, there are 20 or 30 different variations that all have their own rules that, that, uh, that we'll call the methods of preparation, MOPs, that, uh, that are determined by the pizza makers themselves. And uh, sometimes they, they take on a regional flavor, and the style, and sometimes they're just a very personal choice. I was going to ask if certain regions, because I was not aware that Ohio even was a genre of pizza. Well, I only know that because of, of the world of pizza competitions, in which if you were to go back over the last 20 years and see the various Americans who have done well in the international pizza competitions, a high percentage of them come from Ohio, because there was a very competitive uh, they, they, they grabbed on to the competitive aspect of pizza as a great marketing tool. And so a lot of those people started making their names, international reputations by winning pizza competitions, uh, by coming up with creative toppings. And, and, uh, but the style of pizza itself is not, it's not the same as New York pizza. It's a, usually it's a, I would say a, a softer dough, dough that might, that depending on the pizza, it could be made with a little milk in there or a fair amount of oil in the dough or something that softens it a little. It could be a little bit thicker and more bread-like um, uh, or not. And again, but it's more like, so there's not even, quote, Ohio pizza. It's just that Ohio as a region has become very sort of focused upon because they, they that region has put out a lot of award-winning pizzerias. But would a New Yorker, would a New Yorker give those pizzas an award? Probably not because it wasn't made in New York. Do you think that the people in Ohio are inspired 
and and come up by other Ohio pizza makers. So there's they're very related. Yeah, yeah, because they know each other. You know, it's a, and and the competition start in state, and then they kind of spill over. You know, like there's a there was a an annual competition right in the state of Ohio somewhere, um, probably in Columbus or somewhere, and then uh, then it started these uh, pizza expos started to have competitions where they would identify three or four categories. And uh, for a while, the categories were just basically New York, Neapolitan, and specialty, meaning anything goes. And then after a while, a lot of pizzas that were showing up were more in the Detroit style. This is now more recent, like within the last five years, Detroit style pizzas started showing up and kind of uh, stealing the show. They were so spectacular that they that they had to almost give them their own special category. And so, and then the specialty category began to break down into two or three different distinctions because there's many ways to do a specialty pizza that doesn't meet the rules of either New York or Neapolitan. So the, the game keeps changing every year. It's kind of like uh, the way they keep messing with the football, uh, the college football, uh, you know, final four is now next year is going to be what a final eight or a final 12. Right. So, so they're still trying to figure it out. And in the end, really, to be honest with you, in the end, it's all about marketing. It's all about marketing. How, how many cities do you think have their own distinctive style? Well, and it can change from year to year, but let's say we have now Detroit has a get, you sort of gets a, a shout out. St. Louis has a style and that's a very thin crusted pizza. Sometimes maybe even without yeast, thin with using Provel cheese, which is a three cheese blend. That's very distinct to the St. Louis area. And if you're not from St. Louis, you usually don't like it. But if you're from St. Louis, you usually love it. Um, there's California pizza, right? Which basically is kind of like Wolfgang Puck uh, California pizza kitchen pizza, which is really just a variation of New York pizza or pizza Americana that's Neapolitan-ish with creative toppings. So the focus is more on creativity of toppings. There's New York style. Chicago, of course. Chicago style, yep. Yeah. And then if you're from... New Jersey, sometimes you want to distinguish yourself from New York by saying, uh, we make it, we have our own Jersey style pizza, you know, and uh, there's a couple of different variations there. Is there a New Orleans pizza? Not that I'm aware of. Because there's a place in New York City, a chain called Two Boots, that's got a different type of crust than I've had anywhere. I actually love it, but it's very different than, than other pizzas. They may have, you know, there's, there's pizzas that are probably made in cities all over the country that have evolved into their own distinctive style, uh, but that maybe there's only a one-off place so that the city doesn't get a shout out as, a, as the home of that style of pizza. But what happens is that, like in Detroit, there was one, there was Buddy's or the Rendezvous that started this style back in the 19, late 40s, early 50s. And then suddenly there were three and then there were six. And all of a sudden, when it broke out of Detroit, and this is more recently um, in Detroit, if you just ordered pizza, it was just called pizza. It wasn't called Detroit style pizza. But then once it started to appear outside of Detroit, they designated it Detroit style because it was in the style of these four, three or four or five companies, Jets, Buddies, a couple of um, Cloverleaf. And they, uh, and so Detroit style became a style. Um, so there's, so that's how kind of it happens. And, and it wouldn't surprise me if, for instance, Phoenix, Arizona, as where Pizzeria Bianco is, which is considered by many people to be the sort of the poster child of the whole artisan pizza movement. And it's basically a New York, a, a, it's a Neapolitan-ish pizza. It's baked in a brick oven with wood, 
but it's not baked in 60 seconds. It's baked in like four and a half minutes. So it comes out as a, almost like a hybrid between a New York style and a Neapolitan style pizza. It's its own thing. Is that because it's cooked at a lower heat? Yeah. And, and crispy. And he's using American flour and not Italian flour. I mean, he's created a style that's unique to him that everyone is copying. Now, a lot of people copy it because it's not like a rocket science thing to do. But um, but if two or three pizzerias opened up in the Phoenix area or in, in around across Arizona making styles like his, then there could be something called Arizona style. But it hasn't happened yet because nobody's been able to beat, do a better job than Chris. And so it's so it's still just one guy. So maybe some people refer to it as, well, the, the, the general term these days, this is new. The language changes every couple months, is Neapolitan-ish. <laughs> yeah. You see what I'm saying? It's like a game that you got to kind of keep like keep up with the, you know, with, with the players because it just keeps changing. Now, you're in Rhode Island now. No, I'm in, in Charlotte, North Carolina. I, I was in I was in Providence for a number of years. There was a you know, there was also the uh, the uh, uh, Al Forno pizza in, in Providence that was famous, which was a uh, what you call it? Um, uh, grilled pizza, the grilled pizza, which was not invented in Providence, but the guy who perfected that style at Al Forno restaurant came on grilled pizza and it's cooked over an open fire. And it's one of the best pizzas you'll ever eat. And a couple other people have copied it, but no one's ever been able, even in New York city where they've tried to um, replicate it. And, and a couple of places have, have taken a stab at it. It just doesn't seem to have traction outside of Providence, even though it's fabulous stuff. I've done it by default before I had my real pizza oven and, the difference for me was I would flip the dough over. That's what they do. Is that what they, I mean, I just figured that out on my own. Yeah, I wrote about it in, in one of my books in American Pie. Uh, and I used to, I basically, I lived in Providence when I, you know, when I wrote that, I, they gave me a lesson. They, they, they showed me how they do it. And it wasn't a big secret to them. It's just that it was a lot of work, but they first would cook it over the open fire, then flip it over. And then they put their toppings on and they would move it to a cooler part of the grill. So it would take longer for the toppings to melt. And um, it was simple. It was simple and elegant and it was crisp and delicious and smoky. You know, it was really, it was, a, it was really one of my favorite pizzas of all time, but um, I've never been able to find too many places that can do it as well as they did it. And, and yet it wasn't, I mean, I've done it in my backyard and made killer versions of it, but to do it commercially and to, and to have, you know, have people constantly trained to be able to step in and do it at the same level, you know, only Al Forno's really been, managed to keep that that alive. I think one other place in Providence does their own grilled pizza, and it's slightly different from Al Forno's. It's very good, um, and it's it's like Philly cheesesteaks. A Philly cheesesteak exists everywhere, but it's never as good as it is in Philly, right? Because probably not because it's not as good, but probably because there's something about eating it in Philly that psychologically makes it taste better or authentic. Yeah. Now, I keep seeing this pizza place in Boston popping up in Somerville called Jung's Pizza. Have you heard of it? It, it looks amazing. Brick oven, Neapolitan style. Oh, yeah. Well, it sounds like they just jumped into the pizza game and came up with a really good version. But there was a style when I was a kid living in Philly. We, there was a couple of places called Boston style pizza, which basically we finally figured out meant that it was owned by some Greeks. Because the Greeks got heavily into the pizza game in, Bo in the Boston area, and then people would make that sub. But really, it was Neapolitan-ish. It was just a variation of the New York-style pizza, 
usually with a little thicker crust and a fair, fairly good heavy-handed cheese. And we liked it. You know, the Boston style pizza place where I grew up was one of our three or four go-to places when we would like get together and send out for pizza. Are you a fan of cold cheese pizza? Is that the one where they put the cheese on after the pizza comes out of the oven? They put an extra heap. Uh, it's got to be 2,000 calories. It's a big thing. One of Scott Wiener's videos, I think it was, uh, is it dough or something like that? You know, really dough. I don't know if you've ever seen really dough, the, uh, the little internet series that Scott Wiener did. And, um, and I saw them making it, uh, but I've never had it. But it, I, I can't imagine. I mean, look, dough, dough with something on it works. And if the cheese is melted, if it's cold, it doesn't matter. It works. It's a lot about, you know, did you grow up with it? Does it bring back memories and that kind of thing? A lot of people went to school upstate and that's where the cold cheese, from what I know, it, it there's two areas. Huntington, Long Island had it. They claim they invented it. I'm not sure if it's true. And Oneonta, New York, they do the cold cheese up in the college town. That's where I think I saw it associated with. But it was because of that video. And they, they were definitely taking bragging rights for that. You know, going back to bagels, I feel like with bagels, the demand is in New York because people grew up with it and know it. And I remember I was in a, a, one of the all-state bands and, and I became friends with these kids from Rochester. I grew up in Long Island, which is like bagel and pizza capital. It's just like Brooklyn. The guys from Rochester came down to visit and they didn't have bagel stores. They didn't know. They felt funny in the bagel store. They didn't order cream cheese or anything because they didn't know what goes on it. And I still think maybe bagels aren't as accessible all around the country the way they are in New York. And because there's less, like here, there's so many people employed by bagel stores and so many people that learn the craft because of the demand, if you go to North Carolina and there isn't a demand, how would anyone know how to make them? Well, it's very interesting that you mentioned that because we're currently at the beginning of a new bagel renaissance in America. I, I, I can go back and track this. There's sort of like the original bagel bagel um, paradigm, which was hand-shaped bagels. You know, the guys in, in a union who would wrap the dough around their hands, go like that, and they could crank them out you know, like a hundred an hour. They were just really good at it. And then in the late fifties or so, a guy invented the bagel shaping machine that made the unions almost irrelevant. It took about another five to eight years for it to wind down. It included, um, it included uh, uh, a bombing of a facility that was producing those machines. I mean, it got real vicious for a while, but eventually the machines won because just like robots are winning today it makes it, it makes it more affordable to produce and the machine can do the same thing that and essentially it does it replicates what the hand guys were doing home bakers were making bagels by making a little round ball and poking a hole in it and doing this so the, so and that's very time consuming and, and costly so you can't mass produce but what happened was was that then the new york style bagel you know boiled you know fairly chewy dense uh, that became the style that most of us grew up with if we grew up on the east coast and then with all these machines and the invention of steam ovens, like what we call rotating rack ovens, where you can put 20 pans in the oven at a time and blast it with steam that can replicate to a certain extent, boiling the bagels um, and, and, and doing that whole thing, which is time consuming and very... Does it come out the same way? It's a different product, but 
here was here's here's where it got really interesting. So back, well, well, this is probably starting in the 70s, in the 1970s or so, the, the, the steam bagels, because that's what, about the time that those ovens started to become a, more widely available, bagels broke out of New York and suddenly became a, a, a nationwide product because they could be made anywhere. And, and, and in some places would still do the boiling techniques and everything else, but m many of the places used the steaming technique because it was so much more time efficient and so, and so much uh, less costly to do. And what you got was a, a larger, fluffier bagel. So instead of, because that oven technique causes the bagel to spring more. And so the, so, so the soft bagel was a game changer, again, because basically, if you didn't grow up with a hard, chewy bagel in New York, but you grew up in the Midwest, you, you didn't have a reference point, just like those folks in Rochester had no reference point for bagels like you knew them. And so the softer bagel was much more appealing for a while to them that that became and so there was a proliferation of bagel shops across the country and bagels became national and it kind of went like this you know the trend was up and up and up and all of a sudden it plateaued and everybody said okay i've done the bagel thing they're okay but you know they're not new york bagels and in fact there was a big thing when i lived in california there was a company called noah's new york style bagels i know noah's i go there all the time i think that bagels are actually pretty good he well, he's originally from the East Coast. No one, of course, no longer owns it. But when he started it, it was started in like Berkeley and, and in, in the Bay Area. Uh, it was a steamed bagel. It was a much oversized, softer steamed bagel. And New Yorkers who lived in San Francisco, where I was at the time, were outraged. I mean, the guy should be hung. This is not a New York bagel. He should he shouldn't be allowed to call it a New York bagel. It was very you know emotional for them. And after about six years of operation, I'm going to guess approximately six years. I'm not sure if I have the date right. Noah sold the company for millions and millions of dollars to one of the larger chains, like either it was Einstein Brothers or one of the other chains that was making national. And Noah stepped out of the game. He retired very nicely. So who won? Noah won, <laughs> but but and and Noah's bagels have been sort of subsumed under this under this other brand. They don't taste very airy to me compared to even in New York City. You go to the wrong deli, they're really airy and they're horrible. And it can vary. And, and even who knows whether Noah's decided to change this, their method to go back to a, more to a New York style at some point. But when it first came out in the Bay Area, it was not a, quote, New York style bagel. It was an airy, soft bagel. Now, I don't know if you know the answer to this. In sourdough, my understanding is that the almost like smoking meat, it's the first third of the baking process where the steam matters. Now, with bagels, is it similar or is it constant steam to replicate? Instead of boiling, do you steam throughout the baking process? No, no. In fact, if you think about it, because uh, I, when I teach baking, you know, to my students at Johnson and Wales, which, which is, you know, they're there to learn about all the different aspects of baking. We, we, we try to emphasize the functionality of the ingredients and the functionality of the techniques. In other words. If you do something a certain way, there's got to be a reason for it. What's the function of doing that? And the function of boiling a bagel is to gelatinize the starches. Starches will can caramelize, they can they can coagulate, but they can also gelatinize and, and they become shiny and, and they thicken. And so when you boil a bagel, you gelatinize the outside of the bagel because it goes into boiling water, which is above the gelatinization point. And, and, but it only gelatinizes the surface because you're, it's only in the water for about a minute or two. 
and then it comes out and it goes into the oven where it continues to bake where the dough then the rest of the dough the, the rest of the bagel will gelatinize and 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 thicken and the outside will caramelize and so all these things happen as a result of the baking process the reason that steaming came in to replace boiling is because steaming will do the same thing it's you steam french breads baguettes get steamed typically a big blast of steam at the beginning after about four or five minutes the steam is kind of vented out because you don't want the steam to stay in there too long or it will take longer for the bread to caramel to caramelize to brown and um and and baking is really a a balancing act between time temperature and ingredients in order to achieve sort of the the ideal version of that product so you with a baguette you want beautiful golden brown on the outside but a creamy soft inside that when you bite into it it almost tastes like like it's fully baked, but it still has almost like a cream-like, custard-like texture to it. Um, bagels being denser than a baguette because air is part of the baking process, allows heat to go in and gelatinize starches and coagulate proteins and all. So the denser the dough, the longer it takes to bake. So by first boiling the bagel, you get the gelatinization on the surface, or by steaming it, you can achieve the same thing. The difference is that with the steaming, you tend to get more of a spring, an oven spring, because you're not beating them up by you know tossing them in the water and everything. They expand. And and then the rest of the baking, then you let the steam out. So you're right that the steam, the steaming benefit is primarily in the first five minutes of the bake. Um, you can steam throughout and do this steam the whole time and get a super shiny product, but that's not really the goal. And the longer it takes to bake, the thicker the crust is going to be. So if you really want a chewy bagel, then you can steam it longer or you can boil it longer to get more gelatinization in the, on the outside. But the whole thing is, what does the customer want? And in the end, we think that most customers, whether especially if they didn't grow up with a particular thing and have an emotional connection to it of being a certain way, they want something that has a nice crispy or chewy outside, but not so chewy that you have to work really hard to eat it. And they want it to be a little soft you know, in the center. And that's why these mainstream bagels or these, you know, the ones that sort of across the country uh, were successful because they were softer than the classic New York bagels were. We grew up with certain places that were our pizza places. I call them, you know, uh, the, the contextually perfect pizza is, is perfect for us because of all the other drama surrounding it. It's the place we went with our friends. It's the place where our families would go. It's the place where we would take our dates. It was all sorts of other things besides the pizza itself that made that pizza so important to us. And you go to a different place, doesn't have that all that history and connection for you, it's gonna take one hell of a pizza to try to get you to accept that as being as good as the one you grew up with. And, th- and so are these, fa- these are real factors, I think, in the way we experience food. It's the same as wine. If you're sitting outside a castle in Tuscany, you're gonna think that wine is fantastic, right? And if you don't have that context at all, and then, well, then there's, well, well in, in American Pie, I talked about pizza as falling into two categories, uh, contextually perfect pizza, like we're talking about now, or the contextually perfect meal. And then I called, I had another category called the paradigmatically perfect pizza, meaning a pizza that conformed to all the, the ideal scenario of making it at the highest level possible. So like a person could walk into Pizzeria Bianco. This was an example of the of sort of a game-changing pizzeria for many Americans. They'd walk into Pizzeria Bianco in Phoenix, Arizona, not a pizza city, but the guy was from New York, so he knew how to make great pizza, and he, but he was doing it in Phoenix, and, and he pushed his own style, he perfected his craft to a point 
where you didn't have to have a history with that place. As soon as you took the first bite of that pizza, you went, holy cow, this is not like any pizza I've had before. This, this changed my opinion about you know, how good pizza can be. And it became a new paradigm for what pizza could be. And that has now become almost the norm. So in the bottom line, it's, I think it comes down to craft. Uh, Tony Gemignani, who's one of the rock stars in the pizza world, he's got uh, Tony's Pizza Napolitana in San Francisco, but he makes eight different styles of pizza there, not just Napolitana pizza, but he's the world champion for making the best margarita pizza in Italy. He beat the Italians, first American to beat the Italians. So he, can, so he has bragging rights. And Tony has amazing skills. And, and he's printed on the boxes of his pizzas. Respect the craft. That's become his catchphrase, respect the craft. And I think he's on to something there because what he's trying to, his message to everyone, and, and this goes back to Chris Bianco who has the same message and the, the folks from Raza, uh, Dan at Raza and a few of the others, they're all about the craft itself. One final anecdote and, and analogy. So in Philadelphia right now, I said there's a bagel renaissance happening. So a place opened about six months ago in Philadelphia called Korshak's Bagel. Phil Korshak is a, is a former pizza maker from, originally from New York, was living, I met him when he was making pizzas in Austin, Texas at Home Slice Pizza, a very popular pizzeria. He was managing the whole operation and they were selling thousands of slices a day. And he, and he loved what he was doing. He, something happened. He and his wife moved to Minnesota for something to, to work there for a while. And then I think his wife passed away so unexpectedly, got ill and died. He moved, somehow landed in Philadelphia. And started working at Angelo's Pizza, where they do a really good pizza. Uh, again, it's New York style. I'm sorry, it's both New York and, and uh, they do a grandma pizza there as well. And um, But it's really, you call it in the general terms of the New York style pizza. But while he was there helping Angelo, working for Angelo, he had this idea for doing a bagel, a higher quality bagel. And, and so Angelo would let him practice making his bagels there. And eventually he, he worked out his system using sourdough starters and you kind of just add, adding craft to this bagel process. And he got his own place a few blocks away. He opened about, it took him a year to get through all the licensing and then COVID and everything else. He got, he got open. There are lo- lines around the block to get his bagels. And by 12 noon every day, he is sold out. All the bagels are hand handcrafted. I was just there a couple of weeks ago. He has a crew of about six people and they're cranking out bagels left and right. He's got a few small ovens. They're doing it the old classic way, turning them on the boards, the whole thing. And, and he can't keep up. He's doing about a thousand bagels a day. Some days he can push it to eleven or twelve hundred, other days nine hundred. But that's his range. And unless he adds more capacity to this tiny little hole in the wall place that he's got, he's 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 capped out at that number. So of course the scarcity of it adds perceived value, but the quality of the bagels is just really excellent. Now, and my and my mom lives in Philly, and my brother lives there, and so he brought her bagels about when he first opened. I connected Phil and my brother. And my brother became part of his tasting panel and he brought bagels to my mom and my mom flipped out and she's convinced it's the best bagel she's ever had in her life. And so now my brother is required to bring her bagels every few weeks from Korshak. And when I went to Philly, I took her to Korshak. So we actually went there and Phil came out because she's, she couldn't even get out of the car, but he came out and, and, and it was like a big special thing for her to meet this guy, Phil, the bagel maker. And then we got the bagels back to her house and my wife was with us and she had none of this sort of connection to any of the story. And she took a bite of the bagel and she said, these really are good, good bagels, but would I go through everything you guys just did to go stand in line to get his bagels? I don't think so. You know, I don't, it doesn't, it doesn't affect me that way, you know, but, but hundreds of other people, are doing it. you know, you're limited. You're not only allowed to buy, I think at the most 12 bagels, they won't sell you more than 12. 
prefers because he just wants to serve as many people as possible. But I'm telling you, this is now Tony Gemignani, the pizza guy who said, respect the craft. He just opened up next to his pizza place. He just opened up a bagel shop. And you're starting to see the same pattern going out there. Bagels are back. And it's handcrafted bagels are back. And whether it's with sourdough, like Phil does it, or yeasted version, it hardly matters. There's something about the handcraftedness of it and the, the, the attention to detail, you know. And, and of course, Phil is part of his legend now in Philly. He's making these fabulous schmears that are his own recipes. He's doing some you know, unique ones. He's doing vegan schmears. He's doing all sorts of stuff. He's getting the highest quality locks so that if you instead of buying your locks from the store, you buy it from him because you know it's better locks. You'll pay more. And he's got a sweet little business going there. And uh, I don't know how long the honeymoon will last. I don't know how long Phil will last working, you know, seven days a week as hard as he's working. I said, Phil, how are you pacing yourself? He says, I got a plan. I'm training people. Eventually, I'm going to be able to take a day off, you know. So he's working it out. But this is the way the, the, the artisan movement sort of evolves in this country. And of course, it's inevitable if he gets it to a certain point, and this could be 20 years down the road, you know, um, some company, Brugger, somebody will make him an offer he can't refuse, you know, and they'll come out with their own version of Korshak's bagels and it won't be as good. And so uh, we, sh we, we can only say, let's enjoy it while we can, because uh, this is a, a, one of those moments where, um, where the craft is back and all the things that we loved and, and the reason we're having even this conversation about the water and bagels and, and things in here is because that's what we miss is we miss that, that connection to the product that is, that is partly due to the craft and partly due to the context of our lives, you know, at the time right now, the context for food people, for food lovers is we want, we're willing to pay extra to get the quality that we yearn for. Right. Well, listen, thank you so much for spending the time and sharing your expertise. This has been really cool. Um, and maybe, maybe we could do another session in the future on, on gluten-free baking because I don't quite understand it. And I know you're an expert in that area too. This interview was such an honor for me. I learned to bake by reading Peter's book, The Breadmaker's Apprentice. I mean, to sit down and talk with him and learn about these genres, St. Louis-style pizza, Ohio-style pizza, it was just insane. If you want to learn more from one of the top pizza experts of our generation, you can buy Peter's new book, Pizza Quest, My Never-Ending Search for the Perfect Pizza, available anywhere you order books. My copy just came in the mail today, and I can't wait to dig in. This episode was produced by Brandon L. Kaplan and edited by Brock Higley. If you're a bread maker with a story worth telling, you can reach us at breadforthepeoplepod at gmail.com.